So you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, continuing on in our series through the book of Luke, finishing up chapter 5 this week. Now I know most of you here, actually maybe there's more than I think, aren't basketball fans. You see, the game of basketball has really changed a lot over the past 10 years. See, the best teams in the NBA used to be the teams that had the biggest and tallest guys who were taller and stronger than everyone else and who could dominate the game by bringing the ball close to the net with their power, getting an easier shot and look at the basket. You think of names like Shaq or Yao Ming or Dwight Howard or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. These guys all dominated the league in their times. You'd pass the ball down to them, and they would do the rest of the work, uh, overpowering everyone and getting a nice, easy shot into the basket. But as I said, the game of basketball has really changed since then. That is no longer the case anymore. Just 20 years ago, players 6 foot 10 or taller, which is very tall, clocked 29% of all the playoff minutes. But after 20 years, just last season, that number was cut in half to only 14% of minutes. And then you have the Golden State Warriors who won the championship in 2022, and they were the shortest team to ever do so. The trend is is going like this. Teams are getting shorter and shorter. So the question is, what changed? Why Why is the game no longer about the big man taking the ball down low? Well, for all the children out there who don't like their math classes, the game of basketball changed really because of a bunch of math geeks who took on the sport of basketball. See, sports analysts began to run the numbers and realized that shooting three-pointers, even though you're more likely to miss, has a far greater payoff. You know, you increase your number of points by 50% if you can make the basket. And so now in basketball, it's no longer size and big men that are the greatest thing to be valued, but guys who can shoot the long ball. And we've seen this change in the numbers as well. 20 years ago, an average of 10 three-pointers were attempted in every game. Last season, the team that attempted the least amount of three-pointers attempted 30 three-pointers a game. See, a new era of basketball has been ushered in. And if teams want to win in this day and age, they need to embrace this new way. The new way has come, and the old has passed away. And so now, why this introduction? What does the game of basketball being revolutionized have anything to do with our passage this morning? Well, I think it has a lot to do with it. You see, there was an established way of doing things when it came to knowing and worshiping God. And there were some big players who dominated the league for many years. You had the law of Moses. You had the temple. You had the sacrificial system and the feasts and the festivals. But then, one man came along who was going to forever change things. The big players wouldn't be the big players anymore. A new way of knowing and worshiping and serving 
and approaching and pleasing God has been ushered in. And just as in basketball, you know, if you didn't embrace this new way, your team fell to the bottom of the league. It's also true that if we fail to embrace the new way of Jesus, there will be consequences. And those consequences are far worse than last place in the league. And so with that, let's read our passage this morning. And maybe you can see what it is I'm getting at. Luke chapter 5, verses 33 to 39. And they said to him, that is to Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new. And the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled. And the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. And so this morning's sermon is called, Out with the Old, In with the New. And that's because the primary purpose of this confrontation that happens here with Jesus is to communicate that very point to us, that a new way of relating to God has come. But there is a a problem, because then what does that mean for the old way? do Do we hold on to it? Do we merge the two together? Do we accept the new one and then just cast aside the old one? And you see, there's some serious consequences here. Because the the Jews for over a thousand years have related to God through one particular means. The covenant that they had made with God on Mount Sinai. Where they were given God's law and they were told these words. See, I, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, and to keep His commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are going in to possess. But if your hearts turn away, and you are not obedient, and you are, not, and you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You see, God himself had told the Jews that it is through keeping the law, all of it, the the moral aspects, the ceremonial aspects, the civil aspects, through keeping that, the people of God will be blessed and they will be rewarded. And if they don't, they will be destroyed. But now... All of the sudden, 
Jesus comes along and he says, wait a second, I actually have a new way of approaching and worshiping God. And he's going to use three parables to explain the, the joy of the new way. That's the first point. The exclusivity of the new way. And then finally, the takeover of the new way. So those are our three points this morning. So first, the joy of the new way. Look again at verses 33 to 35. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So we see here that this whole conversation between Jesus and uh, these disciples of John and disciples of the Pharisees uh, begins because they come up and they ask him a question. I think they're somewhat curious, but I think they're also somewhat judgmental as to why Jesus' disciples are not fasting. Now, fasting, it's an interesting activity in the Bible. That's because nowhere in the Bible is, is regular fasting, you know, a certain amount of times, uh, commanded of us. And yet the, the people who did it in the Bible were men and women of, of great faith and great renown. You know, Moses fasted often before the Lord. David, Elijah, Esther, Daniel, Jesus himself, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. All great people of the faith who saw the need to fast. And then the it's also a difficult topic because the purpose of fasting isn't exactly given for us in the Bible. See, the purposes of fasting could vary as we read through the Bible and see why they're fasting. I mean, Jesus' fast was a test and a preparation for his ministry. The fasting of Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13 was to fast and seek the Lord's wisdom so that, they, so that people could be sent out as missionaries. And then in the Old Testament, we see that the, the primary reason that, that people were fasting was in times of trouble and of anguish. You know, fasting was a way of, of mourning to the Lord. You know, there, it, it was a way of representing your, your dissatisfaction somehow with the present, whether that be your sin or uh, the punishment you're experiencing for sin or or a longing and a plea for God to work and change your circumstances. That's the, that's the main reason why they're fasting in the Old Testament. I mean, take Daniel, for example. Daniel, in, in Daniel chapter 9, recognizes his people's sin and, and, and the reason that they have been exiled into Babylon for 70 years. And so, he's, and, and, and so this is what it says. It says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. See, Daniel longed for the, the Lord to work among them, and so he, he fasted and he pleaded with God to do so. So that's, that's really, I think, the, the main purpose of, of fasting. It's a, it's a longing for the Lord God to work. It's an it's a understanding that something here is missing, something is wrong, and I, and I want the Lord to work. 
But unfortunately, by the time of Jesus, fasting had picked up another purpose. It had become a, a measure of spiritual superiority that would be the measure of your holiness. In fact, it was a well-established teaching uh, that the righteous and the, the pious Jews should fast twice a week. They should fast on Monday and on Thursday. And it's interesting, if you read the Didache, which is an early, early Christian document, they, uh, they say in that, uh, don't fast on Monday and Thursday with those false uh, Jews. Fast on, I think it was Tuesday and Friday instead. And so there was this regular two-day fast that if you, were, if you were holy and you were righteous, you would do that. And we see this in, in Luke 18, the parable of uh, the tax collector and the proud man. The proud man goes before the Lord and he says, uh, in Luke 18, verse 12, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I have. It was a badge of honor to be someone who fasted. And so fasting, it, it became this kind of religious flex that you could hold over someone, a way to show others how much you love the Lord. And the Pharisees, they would, they would milk this as much as they could. You know, they would in, intentionally try and look gloomy and, and, and would not shower and would walk around with this mournful spirit to make it clear to everyone that they were fasting. See, the Pharisees, they, they had this idea that if, if you fasted and, and if you were following God, you needed to be sad. You know, it needed to be joyless in order for it to be true sacrifice to the Lord. If what you were doing wasn't uncomfortable, it probably wasn't spiritual. If there wasn't any, if there was any fun or smiling involved in a certain activity, there's no way that it could be honoring to the Lord. And so they fully embraced this this mournful, um, um, gloomy fasting unto the Lord. So that's what, what fasting is. Now back to our story these men here are challenging Jesus because they see his disciples drinking and eating and celebrating and being full of joy alongside him. And they say, why are they not fasting and mourning like they should be? And Jesus, in his, his absolute brilliance, responds with a parable about weddings. In verse 34 and 35, he says, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them. See, what Jesus is, is saying to them through this parable is essentially the words of Ecclesiastes 3 verse 4. There is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And the time that they are living in is the time of joy and laughter and celebration and dance. And now why is that? Well, Jesus says, because the bridegroom is with them. The bridegroom is with them. You see, in Jesus' time, weddings were essentially a week-long party and festival. A newlywed couple didn't go on a honeymoon. Instead, they spent the week celebrating their marriage with friends and families. And it was the responsibility, the duty of the guests to join them in on their celebration. It wasn't a, a time to mourn and fast, but a time to be filled with joy and feasting. And Jesus is applying this to his situation. Remember, what was the, the main purpose of fasting? A longing for God's deliverance and God's presence among them 
But Jesus says, guess what? God is present now among you. God has sent his deliverer for you. The bridegroom who is here to ransom his bride has come. And it is me, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so the disciples then are not going to spend this time with Jesus mourning and fasting and longing for deliverance because deliverance has come. And now is a time of joy and celebration in their Savior, Lord, and King. Now Jesus does mention in verse 35 that a time will come when it is appropriate to fast. That is, when he is taken away, when he is betrayed and handed over to the Romans and beaten and crucified upon the cross, then there will be a time for fasting and mourning. And even today, I think that that time extends today. You know, we long for God's ultimate deliverance. We live in a world that is still plagued by sin. It is still plagued by death. It's still, still plagued by all of these consequences over thousands of years of people sinning. And so fasting and mourning uh, is still appropriate for us. That's why Jesus says there will be a time later when we long for deliverance, we long for the presence of the Lord. And so, and, 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 but I think, so, so that's the one aspect that we are called to, to mourn and to fast. But I think there's also been a major change where we don't look at it the same way that we used to. See, Jesus has, has brought a new way with him, and with that new way, there is a, a deep-seated joy that will always be with us, even when we long for deliverance, even when our situations are tough. You know, Jesus says to his disciples in John 16, verse 22, before he dies, now is your time of grief. They're going to be going through, through some difficult things. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. No one will take away your joy. And we see this all throughout the book of Acts. I think of Acts 5. They called the apostles in and had them flogged, and then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. You see, Jesus, after his death and resurrection, has brought a joy that can never be taken away, that can never be beaten out of us, that can never be flogged out of us or persecuted or stripped from us. No matter what happens to us, Jesus has conquered sin. He has conquered death and that may and and they may come and destroy the body but we are at peace with the one who can destroy body and soul in hell and so i think that's a a takeaway that we are to have from this you know we are are called to be a people who have a deep-seated joy in the lord because of what he has done if you have if you have placed your faith in Jesus, he has forgiven you of all of your sins. He has made you a child of God. He's given you the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's reconciled you to himself. And he has gone to prepare a place for you that Peter says uh, is waiting there for you. Is is waiting to be revealed and for you to fully grasp hold of so you can have complete communion 
for eternity with God with no more sin, pain, crying, or death. And so what that means is that no matter what you're going through, there is, there is a, a joy that you can have in knowing and trusting and holding on to these promises. You can have joy despite all of the darkness that we have in this world. And so that's the, the first point, that the new way of Jesus brings an a unexpressible, unexplainable joy to the believer. Now, the second parable here is used to illustrate our second point, and that is the exclusivity of the new way. The exclusivity of the new way. Look at verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And so Jesus says here that it would be absurd, no one would ever do this, to try and patch an old garment that has a hole in it using fabric from your new garment. Not only would you be rooting and cutting up that new garment that you have, but also this, this hybrid garment of the two of them would eventually be ruined as well. As soon as, as, soon as you would wash that garment, the new patch would begin to shrink as fabric does. And when it shrinks, it would tear the old and brittle and less flexible garment that you have sewn it to. And so what Jesus is getting at here with this parable is essentially he's saying that the gospel isn't simply a patch for the old system. You know, we don't, we don't take a, a piece of the gospel and then just throw it on. I don't know if you've seen that meme where the guy just covers the hole of all that water leaking out with a piece of tape. We don't just, just smack the gospel on uh, to this old system of Judaism and say we're good to go. Just like the garment, you can't have both systems. It has to be one or the other. And, and, and that's the error that the Judaizers fell into. They tried to combine Judaism and Christianity into some sort of hybrid religion. They wanted to hold on to certain laws and traditions like circumcision and the dietary laws as a means of justification, yet they also wanted justification through the blood of Christ. And yet Paul gives them one of the harshest uh, uh, rebukes in all of Scripture for thinking they can form this hybrid religion. He calls it a completely different gospel, a, a distortion of the truth. And anyone who preaches it, let him be damned. You see, Jesus didn't come as a, as a reformer who would change an already existing structure. Jesus came as a revolutionary, putting an end to the old system and establishing a new one. To, to, to build something new. Jesus had, had become, an old, or Judaism had become an old worn out garment that couldn't just be patched by a few tenets of the gospel. It needed complete replacement. And this, this, this truth, this principle applies more than to just Judaism, but any religion or religious system. There is an exclusivity to the gospel that prevents it from merging with any other. You can't combine new age beliefs and Christianity. You can't combine uh, secular religion and tenets of the secular religion with 
Christianity. In fact, you can't take Christianity and try and, and use anything to patch it up. You, you can't say, I'm going to uh, have Christianity as a part of me and then go on and, and serve the God of my choosing, whether that be yourself or your job or your money or whatever it is. To embrace the new way of Jesus is to embrace it in its entirety. And this relates then to the third and final point of the sermon, the takeover of the new way. Look at verses 37 and 38. And no one puts in and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And so Jesus uses a, a similar parable here to the last one. And it's about new wine going into old wineskins. And you see new wine is, is still fermenting. It's still uh, undergoing the process of becoming wine and a better wine. And in order to do that, it needs to be in, in a flexible material that can expand as it ferments. But old wineskins can't receive that new wine. They've already stretched to their limit, and now they've become old and hard and brittled. And if the wine goes into them, they will tear, and it will all be lost. And the point then that Jesus is making is that God is bringing his salvation and the old covenant is unable to accomplish that and therefore a new covenant is required. The new wine needs to go into new wineskins. God's salvation needs to come through a new covenant with the people. God has great and grand plans of salvation to bring in the Gentiles, to give us the Holy Spirit, to write his law upon our hearts, to truly make us a nation of priests and a temple of the Holy Spirit, to give us freedom in Christ to eat certain foods and wear certain clothings and be lifted from the burden of sacrifices. Now, if that is the case, that means that the old system, the, the law, the temple, the sacrificial system, the feasts and the festivals, all of those tied to the old covenant, they slowly fade out of the picture as the new covenant comes and takes over. So, what, and, and the thing is this, we might say, wow, that's really, we're just going to wipe away the way that God has has interacted with his people for thousands of years and say that that's all done, that that's been done away with. But here's the thing. That was always the purpose of those things. That was always their purpose. They were never meant to be an eternal, this was never meant to be an eternal covenant with the people. It was meant to be fulfilled by Jesus. The Bible tells us that these things were all just a, a copy, a shadow of the things to come. That's the argument of Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. And that's what Paul is meaning in Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17. When he says, therefore let no one judge you by what you eat or drink, according to the, the laws, or with regard to a feast, a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. And here's the key but the substance belongs to Christ. You see, Judaism was never 
the end goal of God's plan. It was never meant to be a permanent fix for the sin that has plagued mankind. Sure, the blood of, of, bolts and goal, of, of bulls and goats could temporarily make you clean externally, but their blood could do nothing to deal with the actual problem that is the sin of the heart. That we are all sinners before God, that our hearts are sinful before God, and that we need a new heart. We need circumcised hearts in order to know and approach the Lord. And the Jews that, that Jesus is speaking to, they just couldn't understand that. They thought that, that Judaism was the end goal, that, that that was God's eternal purpose for his people, God's law, his temple, his sacrificial system. But all of it was just a means to an end. And the end is the new covenant where we get real and lasting reconciliation with God. And now that that has come, now that Jesus has brought the new covenant, it's as the author of Hebrews 8 verse 13 says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so what then are, are the takeaways of what is being taught in this passage? Well, the first takeaway I want to give you is a caution. It's a caution. What this passage doesn't mean is that we should throw out three quarters of our Bible as irrelevant and useless. You know, the error that some people can make is to say that because Jesus has come, because he has fulfilled the Old Testament, therefore the Old Testament has no more relevance for us today. But that's just not true. You know, though Jesus has fulfilled the law and instituted a new system of approaching God, the law still reveals so much to us about God, about ourselves, about how we relate to one another, about how we relate to God. There are eternal moral principles in God's law that will always be eternal moral principles no matter which covenant we are under. And so what we do instead is we don't say, okay, well, now I'm a red-letter Christian. All I believe is what Jesus says. What we do instead is we, we reap all of the goodness of the Old Testament and what it has to offer, but we do so in light of the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We read it in light of Jesus has come. He has instituted a new covenant, a new way. And so when we read things like um, the story of David and Goliath, what we see there is we see Jesus is David who comes and slays our enemies and we are the Israelites who were afraid, but we all of a sudden receive that victory because of what Jesus has done by slaying the enemy of sin and death. And so we read the Bible in light of the fulfillment of Jesus. That's the first application. A second is that we need to make sure that we're not falling into the same mistake that the Jews are making, where we see religious activity as an end goal rather than a means to an end goal. I'll give you an example to help explain. What is the goal of university? Well, the goal of university, ideally, is that we should learn things and we should be equipped to, to be out working in the field that we are studying in. And the means by which that is accomplished is by giving you assignments, tests, labs, exams, practical exams, and all the rest. 
So the end goal there is to learn. But unfortunately, at least for some people, and, and in my cases sometimes, the end goal became getting good marks or getting a degree stamped on your resume, and, and, and that's it. I mean, who cares if I, if I learned anything, I got the answers right on the test, and that's what matters. And the same thing can happen in our Christian life. The Christian life is not about checking off boxes of what needs to be done. It's not about having your Christian to-do list. You know, I, I read my Bible, check. I showed up to church on Sunday, check. I prayed before dinner, check. I served in the church, check. I gave 10% to the church, check. Sweet, I scored 100% on my Christianity test. See, all of those things are are good, and we should be doing all of those things, but they are not the end goal. Those are the means to the end goal, which is God. God is the end goal. Knowing and glorifying God is the end goal. That's what we are striving after, and these are the means by which we do that. God created us not to, not to do a bunch of tasks for Him, but He created us to know Him, to know Him. And so, Ask yourself the question, is your Christian life motivated by doing things for God or is it motivated by knowing God, by loving God, by being in relationship with God and reconciled to God? You know, the Pharisees, they, they did a lot for God, but few of them actually knew God. They actually, few of them actually knew the God they thought that they were worshiping. And I don't want that to be the case for any of us. And then a third application is that we are to embrace our freedom in Christ from the law. Now I've noticed, and, and maybe it's just me, but there is a, a rise in people wanting to subjugate themselves once again to the law. I know multiple people who still think that it is sinful to eat pork, or to wear a shirt made of two fabrics, or to have, <coughs> or to have any <coughs> trinkets in your home. But we are free from that. We are, we, are, we are no longer under that system of relating to God. We're under the new way that Christ has brought in. It's as Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 1, it was for freedom, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not subject again, and do, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now in the, so, so those are our three applications. Now in the, the final verse, Jesus understands that all of these things that I've said, all of these applications that we have, these are, people are going to have a hard time with this. People are going to have a hard time embracing this, especially the Jews. They're not going to, they're, they're, they're going to have a difficult time um, worshiping, honoring, serving the Lord in this way. Look at, look at verse 39, what he says. And no one after drinking the old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. Now Jesus here is using an idiom of the time. Uh, and, and he's using it actually as a rebuke for the Pharisees and their disciples. Jesus here is saying that people can be so involved and invested in the old that there's no desire to embrace the new. You know, there, is, 
comfort in tradition. There is comfort in legalism. There is comfort in religious rituals like fasting twice a week to earn God's favor. And people don't want to change that up because they're already very comfortable in that system. I'll give you a quick analogy of my own. I love the restaurant Subway. If I get a chance to go to a a fast food restaurant, it's probably going to be Subway. And when I go to Subway, I get the exact same sub every time. Pizza sub on Italian herb and cheese with mozzarella, toasted, and a bunch of the toppings that are all the exact same every single time. I, and and, and uh, the reason I do that is because that's comfortable. I know that I'm going to be getting a decent sub. I know I'm going to be getting a sub that, you know, I like it. But the problem is, because I'm so stubborn and, and set in my sub ways and traditions, I'm missing out on something that, that could be better. There could be a way better sub that I'm missing out because I'm so comfortable in what I'm in. Now, it's a bit of a silly, silly analogy, but I think it, it proves the point here that, that, that Jesus is trying to make. Sometimes our stubbornness or our comfort in our traditions can prevent us from experiencing something far greater. That's what was, was happening with the Jews. They were, they were content with this old way. They, they said the old is good. They were content with the traditions. They were content with just checking off their religious exercises, doing their fasting twice a day. They didn't care if this was the truth that Jesus was bringing, if this was actually the new way that God had established. And it's tragic because their contentment in this is going to lead to their damnation. It prevented them from accepting the only way to God. And so in conclusion then, what Jesus is is doing in this whole discourse here is he is trying to explain to the disciples of John and the disciples of Pharisees that they need to let go. They need to let go of the old way that is preventing them from embracing the new way that Jesus has come, that Jesus has brought. And it's the same challenge that all of us here are faced with. Will you set aside whatever it is that you are trusting in and embrace Jesus alone? There's, there's, there's part of us, just like the Jews, that wants to hold on to that thing that gave us security, that thing that gave us comfort, that thing that gave us um, a, a, a false view that we are in right relationship with God. But Jesus says, let go of that. Let go of that and fully embrace me and my way, which is far, far greater. So let me, let me read for you this way that Jesus brought. I haven't actually defined the way. I've said the new covenant. Well, here's, here's what Jesus is bringing for us in his new covenant. This is from Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors, who, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. And here are the the promises. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God 
and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of these to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. What a glorious promise. What a glorious covenant that we have been brought into. And that's only a small portion of all that it entails, of all that Jesus has brought. And it is all ours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let me pray.